welcome to this roundup the world is facing many unknowns due to covid-19 pandemic and much of the familiar knowns are also getting beyond our control as a result both <coughs> lives and livelihood are at risk from this ongoing covid-19 pandemic the shock is difficult to witness as it affects significant elements of both food supply and demand now there is a growing concern that the world is going to face a looming food crisis unless effective measures are taken very you know rapidly in keeping the global food supply chains alive and mitigate the pandemic's impact across the food system so as the virus spreads the number of cases mounts and measures tighten across nations and the systems we see that they are beginning to collapse the global food system will be tested and strained in so many ways in the coming weeks and months perhaps there is a need for redefining and redesigning the fundamentals of the agriculture system to create a more resilient food system for everyone everywhere across nations this is especially you know true when we witness empty shelves to empty fields and barns across nations so it is time like this that reminds us all of the importance of ensuring food security for everyone to discuss the impact of covid-19 on agriculture i'm delighted to welcome professor dr oshan kap to this roundup dr kap is a professor at the us army and his research publications and supervision of research interests include food and agriculture security and defense support to civilian authorities in military operations he is based in the united states welcome professor kap we are so honored to have you on this roundup thank you very much it's been it's a it's a pleasure to be here wonderful professor kap so the food supply chain is a complex web that involves so many different producers and consumers and agriculture and fishery inputs and the processing and storage and transportation and marketing and trading there are so many pieces to the entire system now since agriculture security is a key challenge facing humanity what do we know and what we do not know especially when we are hit with covid-19 and the system seem to be collapsing if not in united states in many other parts of the world i would suggest the first thing uh is an overall strategic assessment uh that i would have of us agriculture is it should be a national security asset and we do not treat it as such it is more like a hidden sector of our culture despite all those pieces and parts of the food chain that you just alliterated um we have some of the cheapest food period in the world and cheapest based upon our percentage of our disposable income in the world averaging before covid-19 around 10 to 11% of our income we spend on food europe and asia is around 20 to 30% and then in other developing countries we know it's between 60 and 70% of their income we also know that all of those figures are going to go up uh respectively across the world we also know that <clears throat> as a trading sector that the department of commerce tracks the us agriculture is the only sector that has been in positive terms since the 1950s when we started growing more food than we needed and we started exporting so uh without going into a bunch of numbers 
we feed the world. Uh, one of the things we do is the American farmer and rancher raise more beef cattle for uh, export that is foot and mouth disease free, that is vaccination free than any other country in the world. We also know that based upon the U.S. Department of Agriculture's budget, uh, approximately $146 billion for AY or FY 2020, about 80% of that is for subsistence and nutrition programs. It does not go for price supports, does not go for crop insurance, although some of it does. Um, one other thing is recently they passed, the Congress passed a $2 trillion stimulus. Of that, only 2.45% or about $50 billion went to farmers. Uh, however, <clears throat> farming and farm production, agribusiness, all the other parts of the food chain that you highlighted earlier, that whole sector accounts for 15 to 70, 17% of what would be pre-COVID-19 gross domestic product for the United States. We also, over the last 30 to 40 years, <clears throat> have been consolidating and vertically aligning industries to produce that cheap food. The consumer demand has been a large part of that. We also know that recently, a large number of meat packing plants, beef, pork, and chicken have closed, reduced operations, or closed completely shuttered based upon COVID-19 infections in the plants. The president recently signed an executive order uh, to open those plants, some of them, but Personally, I don't know how you open some of those plants if you don't have workers to work in them. The plants might be there, but they won't be at full capacity. <clears throat> Another macroeconomic concept that many people do not understand when we talk about why does milk cost so much or why does beef cost so much or why does vegetables cost so much? Um, Agriculture is inelastic towards demand and supply. Uh, you only get to plant a crop of corn once. You only get to start an animal once. Then based on the whims of nature, market forces or external factors, you have to deal with the pricing at the end of the marketing chain. It's not like making soap or building cars where you can start and stop production based upon the inputs that you have to reduce the final cost. You're not allowed to do that. Um, so fundamentally, people don't really understand that agriculture is inelastic. Some of the things we don't know, we do not know what the impact is gonna be on agriculture in the United States, which a hundred years ago, when we had the last pandemic, approximately 50% of the people in the United States were growing food. Now we have less than 2% that are farmers and ranchers. So that has allowed over 100 years the United States 
to take those 48% of the population and become educated, become teachers and doctors, become researchers, become businessmen, become uh, other parts of our society that is allowed because of the efficiency and the ability to produce food over the last hundred years. We do not know how long this pandemic will last to whether or not the waves of the virus are gonna happen like they did previously. Uh, one of the things that's come up most recently with imports, oddly enough, from Brazil and Namibia of beef cattle, because we don't have enough beef cattle in the supply chain, is <clears throat> customers and consumers have talked long about country of origin labeling, so they know where the food comes from. That's not mandated by FDA or USDA standards. So when you go to the grocery store, you may or may not know where that container of strawberries or that steak or those chicken thighs come from. It's not mandated that it's, that it's actually on the label. That might come to pass because of what's happening to our, what's happening to our, our nation now. We don't know how this is gonna permanently change our restaurant food chains. For example, prior to this, we were wasting up to 30 to 40% of our food. Why? Because we go to a restaurant 30 to 40% of the time for our meals and we get double portions. So most of that food goes to waste or we don't bring it home. Or when, we, when the chef or someone else is trying to find something like a vegetable, they want a perfect vegetable or perfect fruit because that's more eye appealing to the consumer. That's why they want the perfect vegetables or perfect fruits. The ones that are not perfect end up going into the waste. Um, one cascading effect that we have, aside from the workers in meatpacking plants, is <clears throat> we burn gasoline that has 10% ethanol in it. And for the last 15 to 16 years, since President Bush put in some price supports to foster a fledgling ethanol production industry, we have grown up with more and more of our corn, up to now 30% of our crop goes into the ethanol production. So no cars and vehicles are driving because everybody's at home. Well, that puts those plants that make the ethanol out of business. And one of the byproducts of the ethanol production, for every bushel of corn, which is approximately 60 pounds, the distiller generates approximately 44 pounds of dry distiller grain. Since it's going through the distillery process, it can go be fed for, to cattle as a, as a supplement. And because it's gone through that ethanol extraction process, it's easier to uptake for nutritional aspects. Well, that source of food has been displaced now. Now you have ranchers and beef cattle finishers trying to find where they're gonna replace that corn, upwards to 110 million bushels of corn that's not being used in ethanol plants. Uh, we have a lot of things about the future we still don't know. Um, 
But recently, there was a uh, webinar that talked about some four bright spots that may be coming up in the future, and we can discuss those if you would like. No, absolutely. Uh, I, I think you made you gave a really good analysis of the overall, you know, uh, state of our agriculture industry and how this COVID nineteen pandemic uh, is going to, you know. May bring some changes, and especially when you talked about that the United States feeds the world, that brings us enormous, you know, responsibility and accountability of how our industry in the United States operates. Because if we are going to feed the world, and if the industry here disrupts, and if you know it goes downhill then the impact is not going to be only on the United States, but the entire world. And when you talked about that, the, you know, from 50, almost 50%, it is now the number of people that grow our food has come down to only two point some percent. That is also, you know, very significant because two percent, approximately 2% of the population in United States are responsible for feeding the entire world. And that is enormous responsibility. Do you think United States will be able to sustain this industry and then we will be able to sustain the supply chain to the world to be able to feed everybody? I think part of the, the recommendations I would make is since we have 15 to 17% of the GDP for the nation, there should be a stimulus package probably of the same size just for agriculture. Uh, unfortunately, <clears throat> there are lobbyists and there are meat packers and there are other agri agricultural businesses that wanna keep a integrated vertically industry because they make more money. Uh, part of doling out money to ranchers and farmers the first stimulus bill capped that money at $125,000 per ranch or per producer, which when you're talking about the scale and scope of agriculture, that doesn't, that doesn't help out that person stay in business. That's why we're euthanizing pigs now because they can't afford to feed them. The pig industry is, is severely impacted by market forces. When the COVID infection started, pig prices went down 70% uh, and it has not been, has not recovered. The, so thus they're euthanizing the pigs because they can't afford to, to feed them. <clears throat> the, and because I go back to the inelastic properties of agriculture, in the past we've had price supports and crop insurance and people complain about why are, we, why are we paying farmers not to produce something or why are we paying farmers to, to do something else? Um, because we have cheap food and because we've become so efficient at making cheap food, it's hard to turn back some of those pages and level the playing field because uh, where I grew up, uh, farming was, you could get into farming one of two ways. You either in Marriott or you inherit it. And that's basically fundamentally not changed in 30 years uh, because the enormous capital that is required to get in the farming industry, and that's fundamentally any part of the industry, whether you're producing uh, an orchard or you have crops or you're a rancher. And I think that 
one of the second or third order effects of what's happening with COVID hopefully is that the federal government will be aligned to understand that agriculture uh, is a national security asset. The president before this happened got the, the Chinese to sign some trade deals to reduce some of the tariffs. They lost enormous amounts of pork because of a different coronavirus in 14 through 16. So they are dependent upon us to get soybeans and corn to reinvigorate their pork industry. And because everybody is dependent upon everybody else in the world, some of the things that we do uh, hurt other farmers. So if we produce cheap cotton or we, tr we produce cheap beef, then it may hurt a farmer in another part of the world who's trying to make their own living doing that. Maybe, maybe some of the, the, the post-COVID-19 uh, actions at the federal state level may reduce some of that because we will hopefully recognize that we have to be more dependent as a nation state on our own ability to produce food, but so do other nation states they also need to be able to produce their own food. Um, one of the things that came out in this most recent webinar is that the livestock industry in the U.S. is poised to lose about $20 billion. That is two-fifths of the entire stimulus package that was promised during the $2 trillion stimulus package. That's the scale we're talking about when we talk about U.S. agriculture. That is enormous. And I agree with your point that the food industry, the agriculture industry needs to be in the strategic security. We need to define it as a strategic security, you know, uh, implications for that industry. So we need to make sure that we are keeping an eye on its security at all times. And the point you made is that, yes, everyone and everything is connected now. And especially the agriculture industry is a more of concern because we are still depending on nature and the natural cycles in how we grow our food. So you, there is a certain season where we you know, plant uh, certain crops and it, there is, it, is, it goes in a very defined you know, natural ways, you know, how much sunlight will be there, how much rainfall will be there. All those variables impact. So perhaps it is now time not only to ensure that every country is able to grow its own food, but also to innovate this industry because we are innovating in so many different, you know, all the other industries are being innovated so rapidly. We do not have to entirely depend on nature to be able to grow our foods. There, there are ways we can grow, you know, food in a different manner, you know, and we can control the temperature, weather, you know, condition uh, inside, you know, uh, certain premises. We can control the how much water goes in that. So there are many different variables that needs to be uh, figured out how to, you know, whatever rainfall we get, how to store that water, and then how we, how can we use that water to have a rainfall, artificial rainfall, when it's required in a certain closed environment where we can control the temperature. So maybe it is time we start thinking about how to innovate this industry because we cannot depend only on nature for us to be able to grow the food because the future of uh, humanity depends on this. So there are, yes, the, the points that you made are, you know, very accurate that we have to start thinking 
now very seriously about you know how every country and how we can make this entire industry sustainable because you know there is a need for innovation uh, there is no doubt about it but at this point how will we make sure that every country has the food security and from what i am reading the reports that africa is going to be hit the hardest especially the rice crop you know not every country has enough strategic reserve of all the grains that they need for their population to be able to survive in africa is going to be hit so hard when it's already struggling with the locust you know and all those uh, other you know variables that has impacted the food you know supply and the food hunger you know most of the people they are going hungry already so what will happen to all these countries uh it and to further define the question you have is if we look at 7 billion people on the planet approximately a billion of those go hungry every day another almost billion do not get their micronutrients whether it's vitamin a or d or k and some of those end up with disease so we have almost 2 billion of the 7 billion on the planet that have some kind of food insecurity uh, the bottom line is what I started out with is how much do we spend on food? We spend the least amount in the United States of any country in the world. We need to be one, uh, able to spend more money on food because we need to be able to ensure that the food supply is going to be around and become as resilient as it can be for things like COVID-19 because something that a lot of people don't want to think about is this may be a 100 year pandemic or it may be a pandemic that happens more than once in the next 100 years. So being prepared for this to happen again is going to be paramount. Yes. Uh, one thing that we do not do that other countries do is make our own meals at home. That's another thing that's probably going to happen more and more is going to the grocery store, buying our own food, which may cost more and growing and, and produce and, and cooking it ourselves. Um, another thing that may happen in the future with other countries is what grows best, like you said, in a climate might be what that country is going to be doing. There are places in the world that grow grapes, mangoes, uh, potatoes, corn, and some places it grows well at and some places it doesn't. Uh, there may be some thought in the future that we grow what is suitable and acceptable in those places because of the climate and that's exchange for what we need for that nation state to feed itself. So maybe it exports what it doesn't need. Another way to tackle this problem is from a world perspective, how do we fix the food insecurity problems that we had pre-COVID-19 versus ones that are caused by sick farmers or sick workers who can't harvest the crops or can't uh, work in the meatpacking plants or can't uh, run the barge that goes up the river to provide the grain that goes into the elevators for the cereal or the corn or the food that's produced in that country or that facility. 
Um, one thing that may happen in the future is that the government may have to look at how do we, how did we build our food chain dependencies? And one of the things that I've written about in the past is the Federal Trade Commission has basically put a blind eye to how foreign countries invest in our food chain into our land if it was for cheaper food. So if it was for cheaper food, then they, they allowed it, the consolidation to happen or the integration or the foreign uh, government to, to, to own it. For example, Smithfield is owned by China. Uh, it's a large uh, pork production facility and those kinds of uh, business dealings in the future probably should have a lot more scrutiny about who owns them and who runs them, along with hedge funds that buy American farmland with the intent to be part of a mutual fund that says that farmland is going to increase in value in perpetuity, which it may or may not, but that's what we've had a lot of, a lot of farmland bought for that. We need to have more support and respect for U.S. agriculture because, as I said before, we do feed a lot of the world. Um, in the 13 or 14 foodstuffs that are tracked, we are either the lead or almost in the top three in almost every one of them. That's corn, uh, that's wheat, um, cotton, and a number of other foodstuffs that are produced every year. I think that based upon that, some wholesale changes in the U.S. are probably going to happen. Uh, when Upton Sinclair wrote his book at the turn of the 20th century, The Jungle, there was a lot of changes made to the meatpacking industry. The USDA and FDA were created uh, in the 20s uh, because, primarily because of that uh, treatise on the social impact of meat packers and, and how they were treated. Another impact is, is COVID-19, which may have the, the revolutionary change that may be needed to cause people to understand and our government to understand how, how important agriculture is. And it's a lot like the military. And that's, I, I draw a lot of similarities to it. We have less than a percent or 2% in the military. That's guard, reserve, and active duty. And they provide all of our security in an all-volunteer force. Well, farming is almost, and ranching is almost the same. You have less than 2% actually in production agriculture, providing all the food for America and a large portion for the rest of, of the world. Yes, those are very serious concerns, you know, uh, that you just uh, talked about. And especially the one point that you made is, we don't know if this pandemic is once in 100 years or whether we are going to see no more pandemics happening more often, or even if there are, you know, any, bio -war warfare emerges, you know, the, then, you know, it is not just a natural pandemic we are talking about. We could be seeing man-made pandemic also, and uh, there could be any ter terrorist attack or, you know, number of things that can happen 
that could disrupt the food supply chain. So yes, absolutely, we do need to protect that industry. And the other one that you made about, you know, the need for workers, uh, especially, you know, there are limited number of peop uh, people that are involved in this uh, entire industry. Uh, like you said, you know, around 2%. So if some of them become sick or if there is a, you know, not uh, available some sort of antibiotics that they need or some sort of fertilizer that they need, or if let's say there is a time for pruning or you know picking up the produce and we don't get the seasonal workers because you know if, as we see now the borders are shut and uh, how do we go through those kind of changes because that may very well be happening right now in the united states because of the uh, you know border shutdown we may or may not be able to have enough seasonal workers for pruning or plowing or planting and picking the produce how do we manage those kind of responsibilities of course in the in the coming years everything is going to be robotized you know so we will have robots working in the fields but for now how do we manage that i think that uh, the people that are here are going to take up a portion of that but you have a lot of immigrant labor that does all of your produce harvesting like you alluded to uh, almost 80 to 90 percent of that is is immigrant later labor and the reason it is and the reason that people don't get into farming is because you can't make a lot of money in it uh, and and picking uh, produce is not a very uh, honorable job at least one that a lot of people in America don't think too much of because like I said before for the last hundred years that 48% that were farming are no longer farming. They are going to school. They're in business. They are in the arts. They are in some other field of study doing what they do and they expect to go to the grocery store and find food or more than likely go to a restaurant and find food that is cheap or reasonable and be able to buy it. I believe some of those expectations will change in the coming months and years where we're not going to be expected to be able to go to a chain restaurant and feed a family of four for $30. It's not going to happen anymore. Yes. Um, prices will go up. I don't think <clears throat> the American consumer is going to bulk at that or balk at that. Um, if they know the food is from the United States, because I think the nationalist uh, thought may become prevalent when the rest of our supply chain has been so dependent upon places like China, our electronics, and all the big box stores that you can go to. 60 and 70% of the products there are from China or for some other country. A lot of that manufacturing may come back. And, and quite frankly, we have a lot of people out of work now. I think a lot of people are gonna change jobs in the next two to five years and change professions and vocations because of economic forces. Some of that might be in the agriculture production industry or agricultural research because we need, like you stated earlier, we need more research done in genetics, uh, we need more research done in how do we grow plants in a modified climate where we modify the climate. 
so we can grow crops year round without having to depend on exports and imports for certain products. Like we do with meat now, we virtually don't depend on anybody for meat. We grow our own cattle and pigs and sheep and turkeys and chickens and eggs and milk, but we don't, and we export what we don't use to other places. Yes. So I think in, I think in the future, some of those workers you're talking about that aren't allowed to come in are going to be replaced by people who are out of work now because they're going to have to change jobs. What's going to be frustrating or challenging is how willing they are to change those vocations or professions in the future. Um, the people that are out of work, are they going to become <clears throat> um, disenfranchised with the fact that they went into an industry and now that industry has been curtailed. So now they have to go do something else. No, I, I, I think you are right about that, but I was thinking how we have decentralized the entire energy sector that, you know, consumers are now becoming producers of energy. I think we will probably have to go towards that, that consumers will have to, you know, be able to produce their uh, own food. And we should do that for our own security. Everyone, you know, especially for people living in suburbs and who have big backyards, whatever you can grow, you should grow on your own because that would, you know, keep the supply chain, you know, alive because, you know, it doesn't matter where other, you know, part of the world the challenges happen, but at least if you are able to grow your own food, it will be good. And I, I mean, it's not going to be easy, especially, you know, my husband and I, you know, if I tell this uh, when COVID-19 hit, we have a large backyard. So we decided let's try to grow some you know, food ourselves. And we realized we, we are learning right now. We realized growing cilantro, growing ginger, growing potatoes and grapes and all different kinds of fruits and vegetables. It's a, not easy to do that. You know, the effort that goes into growing the vegetables. And then, you know, when you start thinking how cheap there i mean you buy a cilantro bunch of cilantro in like 40 50 cents per you know bunch and you get ginger and the ginger takes almost like six months to grow in a properly you know it, and it's so cheap outside so yes i mean there is no incentive like you said you know people are going towards industry where you make more money but i think you know for our own security we all should grow what we can if we have land available and i plan to do that you know it's a whole learning curve that is required but it's still, it's, if you have land and if you have time, you should grow a little bit of your own food. Decentralize the production, I mean, growing of uh, all the produce, that would help in the coming tomorrow if these kind of situations become much more common. But when we talk about the strategic reserve, I mean, for the, us, you know, it looks like we are quite comfortable, especially, you know, in the United States. But uh, what kind of grains we have in our strategic reserves if some other kind of emergencies come over. I mean, I was researching, you know, in Africa, they, they are very short on rice and uh, countries are shutting down. And I was talking to someone else that was telling that, especially Asian community that are dependent on Asian food, we are going to have a hard time to find those food now in this country because the borders are shutting and the, you know, supply is going to shut down because they, all those countries will need that food for their you know, citizens. So 
there will be a lot of challenges coming our way. So especially for the strategic reserve of food, are, is our country comfortable in all the strategic reserves? Uh, because the corn supply, you know, and that you just mentioned in earlier, that is going to be impacted because now, you know, the fuel production, ethanol and all that is going to be uh, shifting. So uh, there are a lot of, you know, changes coming our way. How, how do you see countries, not just the United States, but other countries, you know, working on the strategic reserves of food? So first off, the, again, back to doing stuff yourself. So some of the things just to add to your point is, there's going to be more farms that do some of the productions and some of the processing. So you're going to go to farm and maybe get your beef or your pork and not have to go to the grocery store. That's probably going to happen more and more. You're going to go to a dairy and be able to get uh, cream and butter and cheese. That's going to, there's going to be markets that spring up that are local, kind of like we have your farmer's market in a lot of cities. That's going to expand. <clears throat> to other farms and provide jobs and provide opportunities for farmers to stay afloat and farmers to be more resilient when things like this happen. Getting to the, uh, you, uh, the world agriculture uh, problem, you have uh, some things I like to say is there are certain foodstuffs that are culturally and regionally aligned. For example, uh, tuna and fish um, are in Asia pretty prevalent, uh, or fish itself and rice are pretty prevalent in Asia. So are mangoes. So is pork. Um, other places like in um, Africa, they get a starch from yams or from other products. Um, here in the, in the U.S. and especially in the North and Southern hemispheres, we have pork, but we also rely upon beef. And corn is our number one starch aside from potatoes. So some of those, um, you, you can't feed, I mean, you can feed a starving person just about anything. But if they're not starving, if their culture is they don't eat pork, they're not going to eat pork if you should give it to them. So some of those considerations we're gonna to have to make as far as how we feed starving people and how we feed people that are uh, missing micronutrients, that's gonna be hard to come up with solutions um, if you're constantly battling the cultural aspects of what they expect to eat, how they expect to eat it, do they drink goat's milk? No, they only drink cow's milk or camel milk. There's, there's lots of cultural things that are significant, which goes back to my original premise that agriculture is really hidden in the US, but it's also hidden across the world. It's hidden in all kinds of cultural practices. What people, what people celebrate for religious holidays and what they eat is different everywhere uh, and that's but that's part of their culture and that's part of how they grow up um, and and part of our culture was left behind when everybody wasn't farming or 50 percent of the population wasn't farming and eventually most people went out to eat and 30 to 40 percent of our food we were wasting because 
we were going out to eat and not eating it. So there's some cultural changes that are going to have to come to the forefront to make some of the fundamental revolutionary changes happen. Like we may have enough food in the world right now to feed everybody, which we do. The, the problem is the political differences from one nation state to the next and how some nation states use food and have used food in historical terms to manage their populations, to manage through alter, uh, totalitarian means how their, how their country is run. Um, because this is a single event that's hit everyone, in various degrees, but every nation or 150 plus nations have had this COVID-19 hit them. Maybe there'll be more, <clears throat> less challenges and more acceptance to change. Uh, less frustration with the political process. And because when, 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 you, when you bring up, well, this thing could happen. Well, if you'd have brought this up, and some people have over the last two decades, a pandemic like this could happen and fundamentally change the world. People didn't listen. People didn't stockpile PPE. People didn't figure out how to do a vaccine. Uh, people didn't shore up the food chain. People did, I mean, it, because it, it was, if you said it too many times, it was like crying wolf and nobody was gonna listen to you. So maybe because it has happened, that will be enough of an impetus to actually drive change, whether it's from the UN or whether it's through regional uh, alliances or whether it's through continental alliances as to how we're gonna manage our food supply, how we're gonna manage how we import and sustain ourselves through research and development. Uh, because the, the, there are issues with research and development. Research and development is gonna become more and more dependent upon AI technology. Well, with AI technology, you have more and more ability for somebody to go in and use that in bad means, just like you stated earlier about bioterrorism and biowarfare. And one of the reasons that nation states haven't used it is because there's no way to control it. Once the vectors are let go, whatever they are, they can come to your populace, they can go to their populace, they can go anywhere. And that's one of the reasons why nobody's ever really used it nation state against nation state. We, we have seen some countries use it in the food supply, using uh, disease in crops. Hopefully some of that will go away with all the, the fundamental change that's happening where people and nation states will wanna become more cooperative versus becoming challenging and competitive. The competitive part should be, let's compete to feed everybody. Let's compete to have everybody have the same ability to have micronutrients. Let's compete so that every farmer in every nation state has the ability to grow something or raise something that either feeds people in their population or feeds other people in the world. Yes, you know, very true, very true. We need to focus on those areas and we need to have those defined positive goals. But we also know the reality that while the nation states are uh, moving away or not focusing on, you know, starting this kind of bio warfare, now 
the democratization of destruction because of the cyberspace and because of the advances in synthetic biology and gene editing technologies, anybody, any crazy person or any you know, person with an agenda any, in any part of the world can start a pandemic you know, can design an organism to, you know, that, that is a pathogen and start a pandemic on its own, or can design an, uh, an organism to destroy any country's crops. So there are many, many potential security risks that could, you know, happen. And because we don't have a way to control or we don't have an alert system that can, you know, identify who is working on what in their basements or in the garage or in their own laboratory. So they, it is almost impossible to know who is doing what at this point. And that democratization of destruction brings us many, many security risks, including the risk to our, uh, you know, start the pandemics or to risk our agriculture or food supply chains. And those are very serious risks. So we do need to think in a very different way now as the nature of risk are, you know, evolving and the, it is changing so rapidly. So we will have to come up with new ways we can identify risk and manage those risks, you know, effectively. So having said that, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners? Uh, COVID-19 will soon go away. It might not go away as soon as you want it to go away. Um, our U.S. agriculture is resilient. Uh, you'll probably hear more about uh, vegetables being plowed under, animals not being slaughtered, or slaughtered and not being used. Um, but I believe that we will become, we, we do have a resilient food supply. It will change. I hope that the federal government steps in and provides some ability to the farmers and ranchers that we have now to stay in business uh, because the vertical integration that has come to place now is one of our key and critical indicators that makes the food supply fragile. And I'm hoping that some of the things that come out of COVID-19 will respect agriculture and support agriculture in the future because we don't only feed uh, the U.S., but we feed the world. So there's a sign in Kansas on I-70. Uh, it says that every Kansas farmer feeds himself and 100 and I believe 68 other people. And that's been going up ever since the last pandemic and will continue to go up um, in the future. So I'm hoping that with that increase in productivity, we make some social changes so that more people get fed in the world and that more people in the U.S. understand where they get their food from. Thank you so much for that excellent uh, suggestions that you gave, especially about that while we are resilient right now, we do need to focus on bringing the resiliency in the coming years. And because we have this bigger responsibility of feeding the world, we do need to make ensure that our systems, our you know supply chain, our you know production system, and everything you know is sustainable. So thank you so much, Professor Cup, for participating in this roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on COVID-19 implications on the agriculture industry, and our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you provided today. And as a result, the risk roundup dialogue has been of service. We thank you for that. Risk Group is a strategic security risk research platform and community, 
Our ecosystem is the first and only cross-disciplinary and collective community that is made of top scientists, security professionals, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, philanthropists, policymakers, and academic institutions from across nations collaborating to research, review, rate, and report strategic security risk to protect the future of humanity. Add your voice to risk groups, get involved to protect the future of humanity. Until next time, I'm Dayshree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time.